Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Agora Presents The State Part 2, Westphalia. Today we are going to talk about the Treaty of Westphalia and how that treaty has impacted international relations since then. Today we're joined by an all-star cast. We have Zach Twomley of the When Diplomacy Fails podcast, and he did a four-part series on Westphalia. We have... Ben Jacobs of Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast. I can imagine that he'll talk about Westphalia. And then we have Travis Dow of many podcasts, but he's particularly has a history of Germany podcast and he's an all around German expert. Uh, He can tell us a little bit more about himself that he knows a lot about Wittenberg, Westphalia, the 30 years war and just everything around there. So how's everybody doing? Pretty great. Yay. <laughs> and we're going We're just going to jump right into it with a little bit of background on the 30 Years War and why that was important and what was what was generally happening in that time period. So um Travis, why don't you just tell us a little bit about the get us situated where we are in history and time and place. Yeah, so the 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 seventeenth century, let's say, or the early seventeenth century, or even the the sixteenth century, if you talk about the Holy Roman Empire, it was kind of a mess of this hierarchical, you know, semi-autonomous states. Some of them were, uh, some of them were were like the lords and counts were Protestant, but most of the population was Catholic, and other places. You had a lot of the population was Lutheran, but the nobility might be Catholic, you know, or that you, you know, luckily the, the nobility might agree with you. Um, and then in Bohemia, in Bohemia, you had Hussites, like a different brand, another century older uh, brand of Protestants and with the Austrians ruling them, which were, you know, Habsburgs and, and staunch Catholics. So you had this like mishmash of Protestants and Catholics, basically. Um, and... There's neat, there's, you know, that kind of, because I I lived in Prague and there's some neat history in Prague because Prague had some emperors that were very tolerant, like Rudolf II. And there were some people that um, came there kind of to escape persecution where they, like Johannes Kepler 
was Lutheran, but he lived in Graz for a while in, you know, in Austria, which was Catholic, and then came to Prague. And Tycho Brahe was the opposite, like he was a Catholic that lived in Denmark. He was a Catholic nobleman and ended up in Prague. And then, you know, they ended up being like business partners, kind of. Um, and then some of the, I guess the the very, some of the, the spark that set the Thirty Years' War um, going or alight was started in Prague, which was the second defenestration, and that that could be a whole that is a whole a podcast epi- that is a that is a whole episode actually on the Bohemian podcast um, and when the films as well. <laughs> oh yeah, there, yeah, there you go. And uh, but basically, like long story short, some some uh, Protestants got angry and stormed the castle. Just a couple, like just a half dozen, you know, got angry and stormed the castle. And chucked a couple of guys out of a window, like Catholic uh, advisors, basically. And uh, they survived, and that started a three-year rebellion. And then uh, the the leaders of this rebellion, it was, I mean, there was the Battle of White Mountain, which was a slaughter, and the, the Czechs lost, the Protestants lost, and Austria took over. And the leaders were arrested, and this is kind of interesting because they were, they were nobility, uh, some of them, most of them. And they were Protestant nobility, and they were tortured and kept in, you know, or at least imprisoned for some nine months, and then executed in uh, 1621. And that was kind of seen as, that was at least one of the causes that kind of set the whole thing afire, because you can't just execute, it was like 21 uh, Protestant noblemen, and the Catholics just executed them publicly, and, and uh, in, in a pretty horrible way, actually, some of them. So, and put their heads on spikes, and, you know, put the spikes on the on the bridge, and, you know, the whole nine yards, what you do. <laughs> and um, that was that. So, 30 years war happened. So, just to keep this brief, because uh, multiple of us have spent tens of episodes on the Thirty Years' War, or we will be spending them. Um, so, after the, the revolt in Bohemia broke out, this sort of touched off a situation where the, the Protestants and Catholics in the Empire had reached sort of, a, they were sort of at a Cold War kind of situation, and this broke it out into open hostilities with uh, some of the princes of the Holy Roman Empire who were Protestant, picked up the side of the rebels in Bohemia, whereas some other princes who were Catholic supported the emperor, and the emperor had little ability to shift for himself, which is just part of the basic constitution of the Holy Roman Empire. The emperor didn't have too much power, actually, but he got the support of a bunch of the Catholic princes. Um, Bavaria. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, mostly Bavaria. Um, and the fighting sort of went back and forth. It went mostly against the Protestants, uh, but then a variety of outside forces started getting involved, and this is really the main story of the the Thirty Years' War, and I'm trying to keep it brief, so I'm not going to give a full blow-by-blow, but um, things were sort of going against the, the Protestants, and then the Danes got involved, and then they sort of got... Um, they didn't do too well. (laughs) (laughs) And then the Swedes got involved, uh, and the Swedes happened to be, they they were in the process of centralizing their, their country, but more importantly, they were led by a military genius named Gustavus Adolphus, who proceeded to beat the tar out of anybody he came across, at least until he died in battle. Um, then, uh... But the thing with the Swedes was that they were actually not 
entirely their own uh, force because uh, while certainly Gustavus Adolphus wanted to be involved, he was being bankrolled by Catholic France, <laughs> who was taking the side of the Protestants because they were more afraid, uh, and they, I should say, were um, being led by Cardinal Richelieu, a cardinal, uh, who was the regent for a... Uh, f- first, who was just the main advisor of a uh, Louis Thirteenth, and then was the regent, essentially, for the boy king of Louis Fourteenth later on. Um, and they were more concerned about the fact that the Habsburgs, the Holy Roman emperors, keep in mind... Uh, so they, the Holy Roman Emperors potentially controlled the Holy Roman Empire, but the Habsburg family also had extensive holdings in Italy, and they, another branch of the Habsburg family also ruled in Spain. And part of the Spanish holdings as part of Spain was, oddly enough, uh, what we would now call the Netherlands. So the French are potentially looking at a situation where they're surrounded by Habsburg possessions, and they are not overly happy about that situation and so they start funneling money to the Swedes to fight the Habsburgs Uh, ultimately uh, with the death of Gustavus Adolphus things sort of come down to a very brutal but non uh, non decisive uh, back and forth war at which point the French openly get involved (laughs) Uh, the French sort of hadn't gotten involved before for political reasons, but also because they were fighting their own Protestant uprising. So they're fighting Protestants with their left hand, yeah. supporting Protestants yeah. with their right hand. Yeah. Then the French get involved, continuing to support the Swedes, by the way, financially, but then they also send their own armies in. That pretty much undermines the ability of the empire to resist. But at this point... So this is 1635, basically, the French get involved. There's some back and forth still, but at this point, everyone's been fighting this war for so long, there's so many parties involved, there's so many issues involved, plus at the core of it, there's religion, which people can't just be like, well, okay, because it's their immortal soul, you know. So um, it takes them uh, many, many years, basically, uh, the war is eventually settled in 1648 after, depending on who you ask and which country you are, three or four years of negotiations, uh, at which point I think we can pass things off to Zach to talk about the actual treaties. Woohoo! Okay. Thanks for that, Ben. That was very good. Before we even jump into the treaty, we've talked a lot about the Holy Roman Empire and all these different parties, but the Holy Roman Empire was a pretty unique institution at that time, can, um Maybe, Zach, tell us a little bit before you talk about the treaty. What was this uh, conglomeration of mess the Holy Roman Empire all about? Okay, sure. Well, I think the thing to uh, to accept above all, before you look at something like the Holy Roman Empire, you need to just accept that there really isn't any modern-day equivalent of it. Like, some people have tried to compare it to the European Union with varying degrees of success, but, I mean, it's just too weird and too kind of complicated an animal to say like you can do with some old monarchies or, or dictatorships in the past whatever. yeah like you can draw parallels with the european union sure. like every country has its own army but yet there's a powerless you know yeah. like you could you could yeah but no it's totally its own thing i yes. think it's important to say that for all these things that we're talking about in this episode 
using the word state is kind of an anachronism in general. Yeah, uh, I mean... Agreed. Even France was a compilation of a bunch of different disparate territories. Yeah. Disparate nobles with varying degrees of loyalty themselves, yeah. I mean, like, yeah. I can't remember who it was that said it, but they said that the Holy Roman Empire was not holy, not Roman, and not an empire, and I think that really says it all. <laughs> uh, because... It's been attributed to about a dozen different people. Yeah, I thought that. I mean, it could even just be a historical, like, phrase at this stage, but, I mean, the the Holy Roman Empire itself is a weird beast, and... With this, well, this will come up later on, but the fact that it was such a weird beast, it made historians look at it in a certain weird kind of light. Some historians saw the Holy Roman Empire yeah. and thought, well, it's so strange, it's not a state, so therefore it was always going to fail. So therefore, the Peace of Westphalia meant this. And, like, I encountered that a lot in, in my studies. But back to the original question, um, if you're going to look at kind of like the makeup of the Holy Roman Empire... I, I suppose it kind of centers upon the emperor himself, but then there you have the seven electors as well. And within the electors, the electoral college, there's varying degrees of power. And let's just say things were a lot simpler before the reformation happened and then split changed what it meant to be an elector mm -hmm. from purely like political, maybe strategic reasons into kind of religious, because now instead of just electors, you have Protestant electors or even Calvinist electors in the case of the Palatinate and then you have Catholic ones as well and rather than just a case of who do we elect now it's a case of whose religion is is the electors and what how will that inf impact the actual election of the Habsburg or not a Habsburg or is it even right to not elect a Habsburg that kind of thing so it's kind of hard if someone it like it's almost, it's almost like defining one of those great questions. It's like, how do we even, where do you even start with the Holy Roman Empire? I mean, how, <laughs> well, I ended up in changing. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I, on my show, I keep redefining it because I'm like, okay, so now, because yeah. I'm still in the early days, and I'm like, okay, so here's, here's what it's not. Yeah. It's not the Frankish. It's not. See how it's different. Mm. Okay, now you know. Let's let's go to the next century and d redefine it yeah. again. And I'm still where everybody's Catholic. I'm still in those days where they're they're going out and conquering pagans. Oh, and it's, sure. It's 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 still weird mm. because you know it, there's that relationship with the Pope is what that yeah. means. So there's always this like, well, we can't get crowned emperor until we actually reconquer Rome for the tenth time yeah. <laughs> and you know march into northern Italy, yeah. and then we actually have to make it official with the electorate. Yeah. But wait, you already had the coronation. Just you know, go with it. <laughs> yeah. What? <laughs> you know. Oh, it's so weird. yeah, yeah, it's it's a beast. I think that's you know, long story short, it's yeah, a beast. it's a never it's, it's a never changing beast. And to be honest, every time I think I know what it is, I read a different article and I'm like, well, that's actually a good point. Now what do I do kind of thing? It's it's almost like it's mm -hmm. like an ever changing story. And throughout the century, it's I, shaped by various events. I just wonder. I mean, they were just making it up as they went along. Well, weren't they were they? Yeah. They're just like because they're, they're all a bunch of illiterates, you know, except for the bishops. <laughs> Everybody's going around and be like, well, you know, how did Grandpa do it? I don't know. Let's just, it was, it was, you know, I think you went to Pavia, right? Let's go to Pavia. Yeah. It was, uh, you know. It was an intensely medieval uh, institution. Yes. And yeah. part of the Middle Ages that you sort of need to understand is that every no one was allowed to invent new things. It was always supposed to be... Well, you're trying to reach back. Yeah, you're, you're trying yeah, to reach back. Yeah, you're trying back. to go back to tradition. So, like... The Holy Roman Empire gained its legitimacy as an empire from the Empire of Charlemagne, but um, what I'm talking about in my show right now is the period between the Empire of Charlemagne and the start of the Holy Roman Empire, mm. with the 
And, you know, clearly the entire fabric of European society dissolved for about a century yeah. in between that period, but the title survived. And so when people started picking back up the pieces, they were able to say, well, we've got this title. And we've got oh, these I mentioned that it was somebody in Italy had it. They're like guy, guy the, the emperor, the emperor, the king of Germany, and the Holy Roman Emperor were not the same person for like four generations. Yeah. And then it was like, oh yeah, wait, if you conquer this city state, you know, then then it's then you're the emperor again, kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Like, okay, right. And, which is why I've spent like, which is why I've spent like ten episodes of my show talking about this random italian group of nobles called the gadeshi that are fantastic but totally ancillary to our show <laughs> and it seems like the thing from listening listening to all your shows is the thing that really kicked all that or that like the last domino that knocked everything down was that with the breakdown of the religious cohesion yeah. that there wasn't anything that was holding them together because they were disparate cultures, different languages, different worldviews, and they were held together with this religious idea. But once Martin Luther uh, knocked on the door, then that cohesion fell apart. I think it might be even more... It, it was just another thing for the, the electors to get split about. But with religion, you can't be like, all right, well, we'll agree you know, disagree. I'm not a Hohenstaufen anymore. <laughs> I'm I'm going to support the Habsburgs now. It's you have a little bit more firm. You're you're more firmly weld, welded to your your uh, your camp. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I think I think what we've all like because we've all except I mean even Stephen, you'll probably come across it as well if you haven't yet already because the papacy and the Holy Roman Empire, of course, they would interchange like they communicate and all that kind of thing so often but i think like what from my studies it's it's almost like people have somewhat avoided the hell empire would you say that would be fair <laughs> because it's just so complicated and so unlike what we know and it's really hard to yeah. explain like you can't like even if you were to define mm-hmm. it in a single sentence it would only be a relevant sentence for a particular period of that empire's history and then it changes again so yeah. like and i think well, and I think that that's an issue that more broadly applies to um, th- this whole discussion that we're having about the the val- the importance of the the Westphalian treaties. That this whole Thirty Years' War period and its aftermath has been sort of very poorly studied for the up until like the nineteen eighties. Oh, big time! Because it just didn't fit in. Yeah, it, it just didn't fit into any nice narratives. Mm. It wasn't a, a good and evil story. It was very hard to tell. Yeah. And it was only after sort of there was a popular acceptance of ambiguity and post-Heisenbergian philosophy, I guess, <laughs> that uh, that people came back to it and were like, oh, there's like all this information about this period. Why hasn't anyone been studying it? Yeah, I often ask myself that question. Like, it's, it's kind of like people have, I think a big part of it even has to do the simple fact that most history narratives begin in 1648 taking for granted the fact mm-hmm. that an era has ended and that a new one has begun because of Westphalia. And if you were to ask these authors, oh, well, why didn't you look at the Thirty Years' War? Surely that would be a great way to connect the old stories with the new stories. And they'd be like, well, the piece of Westphalia kind of, it's like, it's before... I think after. that's how they get away with... Oh, yeah, big time. I think that's how they cover up for, like, I just didn't want to deal with yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's a whole mess that I just... <laughs> yeah. 
it's quite clever really so not to cut any corners with that but let's let's go back into that ending period right there the 30 years war Mm. going into the treaty um you were talking about that sure okay well i mean i think the important thing to clarify first of all is that the treaties of westphalia much like the holy roman empire are quite complicated mainly because they drag on for so long and when I was doing my 30 Years War special, I thought I'd get them finished in an episode, and I had to use four episodes on them, which completely messed up the way my episodes were numbered and really upset my OCD senses. But anyway, so I um, what I ended up doing was, in my most recent ones of looking what, what was Westphalia overrated or not, I came to the shocking discovery myself that the piece of Westphalia, it's kind of... It's made up of two different treaties but then there's a separate piece as well so it's all it all happens in 1648 but the uh what's what you have is the the treaties of osnabrück and of munster which occur in october 1648 and those are between the Roman empire the french and the swedes and then at the start of the year completely actually not to do with what that now those would be called the, the peace of westphalia that's that's in october and then at the start of the year, you have the Peace of Munster, which is why people, I think, get confused. The Peace of Munster was the one between Spain and the Dutch. And that was, uh, like, agreed to in January, mm. then ratified officially in May. And then the Dutch kind of just drop off the radar and do their own thing. And they don't even they don't even send delegates to the actual negotiations happening in Westphalia. What they do instead is they actually send a delegate to the imperial diet at one stage and they they basically ask is the relationship the same and the emperor says yes it is and then the emperor sends a communique to the dutch and the dutch just ignore it because they feel like nothing's really changed i mean what what i kind of came to see was that we've kind of lumped together the dutch the spanish the the french the holy roman empire and the swedes all together whereas in actual fact the Dutch and the Spanish made peace before the actual Peace of Westphalia took place, which is why when people say, oh, well, the Peace of Westphalia gave independence to the Dutch, in actual fact, the emperor had recognized the separateness and the independence of the Dutch a long time before this had actually, this Peace of Westphalia had actually been signed. And because of the fact that the emperor was not at war with the Dutch, even though he would have lent mercenaries, etc., to his Spanish uh, cousin, um, there wasn't really any need to make a peace treaty between the Dutch and the Emperor because like, they recognised that in both of their cases it was in their interests to keep on trading and keep on keep their relationship going. That, that was an inherently good thing. So the Spanish and the Dutch made peace in about May and then they, about, they both separated and went their separate ways, etc. The Spanish had enough to think about. They were still at war with the French. And the Dutch had enough to think about because the English were approaching them with really weird ideas of a union and they just wanted to do their own thing. So they were more than happy to stay away from the Peace of Westphalia, which happened in October. So yeah, a long-winded answer to your question. The Peace of Westphalia happens in October. The Dutch and the Spanish happen in May and they're both mostly unrelated, although you could argue that they are in some senses connected. Well, are you going to break down... Your, you had your... Uh... What, the Westphalians and the anti-Westphalians? Oh, yeah. Like the, the viewpoint of... <laughs> and just to clarify, when I say when I say Westphalians and anti-Westphalians, when I say anti-Westphalians, I don't mean to be against people that live in Westphalia. I have to clarify that because... When, right. So the whole... The <laughs> Westphalians would argue that the Peace of Westphalia is 
all important. It was a fundamentally like era defining event. Whereas the anti Westphalians, yeah. now bear in mind these are distinctions I made up myself. I mean, the two camps do exist, but they don't call themselves Westphalians or anti Westphalians. It's, right. it's just handier for me. No, but that was that was a good kind of yeah like way of looking at yeah, it. yeah i mean it's better I, I mean in a way it's 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 good but in a way it's bad i'll explain why it's bad later on but yeah so the anti-westphalians and um, point out the fact now the anti-westphalians are pretty much led by this guy called andreas Osiander, whose article in 1998 um on like basically why the peace of westphalia was a myth kind of went into all the things that made westphalia a myth such as what i mentioned there the fact that the peace mm-hmm. of westphalia was not a thing happening over 1648 the peace of westphalia was a an agreement between the emperor and the the uh swedes and the french and that was that and then the actual the the spanish and the dutch were a separate entity altogether but so many times historians have forgotten that so the westphalians would often lump them all together the anti-westphalians say no that's not right because we need to be realistic about the way europeans saw themselves back then they didn't see themselves as being lumped together into the same peace treaty just so they could form like a neat package that historians can wrap up and say oh that's handy let's keep that there Do you know like it's, it's yeah a- i think one of the thing i have to mention like one of the things i took away from from your show was when you mentioned the people that actually signed the treaty, I don't remember exactly what you mm-hmm. said, but to paraphrase, you said the, the people that actually signed the treaty, they were not visionaries. No. The way that the romantic historians of the 19th century thought they <laughs> oh, were. Oh, yeah. Like, no, they, they didn't sit down and be like, we're not, you know what, guys, we're not going to have any more religious wars. Yeah. <laughs> we're not going to, you know what, what about, um, what we should, we should think about the idea of statehood. Mm. What? No, no. Yeah. Like, you know, they yeah. didn't, they didn't think. Because later they looked back and was like, oh, well, that was where, you know, that was the seeds of nationality mm. or, you know, nationhood kind of thing. It's like, well, yeah. you know. <laughs> a lot of stuff got projected onto the treaty mm-hmm. that was either, it either came up during the war itself. And usually when historians study wars, they go, and then these people got into a war and stuff happened. And then after the war, and we can talk about the effects. Mm. And, and the Thirty Years' War is a weird one because you actually... If you really want to talk about stuff that developed out of the war, you actually need to get into the war a lot of the time. Yeah. Uh, and the treaty itself is just a couple documents that got people to stop fighting. Yeah. Mm. And then there was yeah. also the stuff that got projected back onto the treaty from later time periods, like you said in your show, based on Franco-Swedish propaganda. Oh, big time. A lot yeah. of the time. And the nationalist historians, yeah. even like their idea of what Westphalia was, they kind of made those ideas of Westphalia be like the accepted like uh, like be the accepted like truth about the peace of Westphalia and what it all meant even when you look at people like Leo Gross who was this hugely he basically made the modern idea of the peace of Westphalia being all important he kind of imagined that into his article but the idea like all his like all the stuff that he writes about he never even really looked at the peace of Westphalia's documents now in fairness they're quite dry and they're in like there i don't i don't even know if the primary like the actual physical documents still exist but i'm sure that they're digitized somewhere but what leo gross did was he kind of parroted the the accepted truths of westphalia and put them forward in such a way that the parroted truths of westphalia became like the actual mm-hmm. law rather than anyone actually looking about the primary sources what it actually meant what these people aimed for and strove for yeah. Like, yeah. It, it, and and this gets into that whole 
scholarship cycle with, where pe- people people weren't looking at this time period at the at that time, particularly because Leo Groves was a, an international relations scholar, sure, yeah, and not a historian. And you know the way this is supposed to work is that the historians come up with sort of the narrative and the facts and everything, mm. and then theorists like international relations scholars sort of go, okay, well, based on this stuff that some historian said, who's a lot who does all the document stuff and mm. fiddles around with the papers. Yeah. You know, now I can extrapolate these ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that Leo Groves told historians what they were thinking is backwards. It's so backwards. <laughs> and even the way that we've looked at Westphalia for so long is backwards. Like the fact that like, even, even at the time the treaties were being signed, right. You had French and Swedish propagandists essentially. And they were talking to like, they're trying to present themselves as like, freeing the Germans from under the emperor's grip and the Germans that they were trying to negotiate this idea with were like no we don't want to be we like being part of the empire I mean we don't want to be like your satellite states or anything like that so then it didn't it's like, a very nice yeah it's a very nice defensive alliance thank you very much yeah. big country next to us <laughs> I know but like you put it, when you look at it like that the the French and the and the Swedes couldn't even convince the Germans at the time to abandon the emperor and yet historians later on talking have presented the Swedes and the and the French as like freeing the Germans from the Emperor when the Germans didn't want to be freed from anything. They liked their Emperor. They liked their empire despite everything. Um it's actually really it's um I got one one tiny story to tell there, which is really weird if you think about it, which is the um the Swedish invasion of Prague. Sure. Because in Prague, so most of the population and even the, the Czech nobility were uh, Hussites, they were Protestants, and you know they fought their own crazy wars, you know, two hundred years yeah. prior, like the Hussite wars. So it's weird. Now they had the Battle of White Mountain. They tried again. They failed. The Austrians won. And now, just a couple years later, I don't know what, a, a decade later, the Swedes come and they lay siege, and the Czechs are there defending Prague against. Like I would say that, like, aren't the Swedes kind of liberating them yeah. in a way? And it's just like. So one thing I would take away from that is like it wasn't clear cut religious, um, mm-hmm. you know, b- bounds. Like it wasn't a purely religious oh, war. And um, yeah, I mean, if just if someone's trying to make that point, like, and eh, there's so much evidence, you know, just like you said about France, that Catholic country, um, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it's just kind of weird that that it, it, it was different. Like even the Czechs defending. Uh, the em- the the empire like the German Empire and the Austrians and stuff was was strange yeah. a, uh, a case of uh, Stockholm syndrome no. <laughs> oh no, no. <laughs> so a huge part of this whole Thirty Years War and really a lot of the wars beforehand the um, Hundred Years War made a huge use of uh, these guys these mercenaries who they would fight for money I mean essentially they fought for money and they were usually a part of a city state and they would hire themselves out to different leaders for different wars as mercenaries do uh ben can you tell us a little bit about how mercenaries were important in the 30 years war and how they evolved through it yeah because obviously mercenaries kind of have a bad name these days right so if you think about it there's there's two ways that you can have soldiers um only one way we think of these days which is that you pay them money and they come from your country, and they're loyal to you, but you pay them them cash. Um, and then, but that's totally different from what they did, at least at the start of the Middle Ages, which is where you 
had someone who was loyal to you and you paid them in land. Uh, ultimately, that whole transaction shakes out to you can have a professional army who spends all their time either training or fighting, and then they need to get paid. Or you have some sort of levy system where you have militias who spend most of their time making money for themselves based on what you let them do as part of your state. Or you have a a landed aristocracy, a military caste, what have you, but really what they're doing with most of their time is managing their farms and their estates and stuff, and then when you need them to fight your wars, you call them up and they, they show up, maybe, if they feel like it. Um, over the course of the Middle Ages, and the, the feudal system that made up the Middle Ages was that latter version. It was a, a military caste on the land that would show up if they felt like it. Um, over the course of the Middle Ages, it became more and more uh, convenient to rely more and more heavily on mercenaries. Um, this has a lot of there's a lot of reasons for that. This, first of all, you don't have to pay them all the time to be training and everything, but then you get professional soldiers, which is nice. Um, and also, just as the economy was more and more cash based, this became more and more possible. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that shifted gradually. Uh, up until the the Thirty Years' War was that um, it was less and less just like someone putting out an ad on Craigslist going, (laughs) wanted dudes with armor. And it became uh, more and more that someone would show up and say, I have 200 well-trained pikemen (laughs) that are ready to do some service for you if you would like to sign here on the dotted line. And as these companies which was originally a military term, but took an interesting split at this point because companies became um, a commercial term as well. And it would they would do sort of the medieval uh, Middle Ages equivalent of what you'd think of a company doing. Investors would invest. They would sort of incorporate and spread the risk around. They would uh, gather up uh, capital and materials and then use that capital and materials to hire employees and then they would try and seek clients. Uh, in this case, though, the capital would be arms and food and stuff, and then they would gather together men who had some sort of... The employees would be men who had some sort of background in military service. Then they would train them, and then they would seek out clients who would be willing to hire their 200 well-trained pikemen or whatever. And this became more and more of a sophisticated system over the course of the late Middle Ages, And when you got into the Thirty Years' War, there are these very sophisticated organizations providing uh, military services for clients. And uh, one of the things that also started to shift was you went from medieval warfare on horseback, um, where you had a couple dozen of your best friends and relatives who would go out and beat up someone else's best friends and relatives. And you moved into a system where you had gunpowder weapons, uh, you had mass infantry armies. Um, and so in the Thirty Years' War, in order to just compete, you needed you needed specialists who knew how to shoot and make artillery pieces, and you needed uh, large numbers of pikemen and arquebusiers and, um, and this, that, and the other thing. And all these people needed to be fe- fed, they needed to be paid, uh, and the medieval state or the medieval political entities that were running things in the 30 years war still hadn't quite built up the capacity to 
necessarily produce the money and food that was necessary to feed and pay all these people. And so part of the, the process was that they would, part of the understanding is that they would be paid in loot. Yeah. Uh, and part of what... That's key, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's, that should be emphasized. Yeah. Um, so a lot of why the Thirty Years' War is notorious is that you had these mass infantry armies roving across the countryside saying, you know, on the one hand, back to their, their paymasters, look, you still haven't given me enough money to feed my men. And the paymasters going, well, figure it out. I don't have it yet. And so the... You know, the the CEOs of these mercenary companies would be like, all right, well, just steal everything. <laughs> get all the food and valuables that you can get, and we'll pay for more food using the valuables, and then we'll share everything out so that the men eat and that they get some semblance of pay so that they don't just wander off. And the ones that did wander off, well, they would also just steal stuff. And so um, there was, this was, to a certain extent, in place during the Hundred Years' War, but by the Thirty Years' War... You saw this on a mass scale, yeah. uh, and these armies were huge, which is why um, you, you saw such devastation in Germany, which is where most of the fighting happened, and most, most of where these armies went back and forth. And so even like the Swedish armies that were the most professional and well-trained and disciplined armies in, in Europe at the time, they were made up primo- primarily yeah. of mercenary soldiers. Mm. And so when they attacked Prague, the people in Prague didn't look over the walls and say, oh, our co-religionists, let us welcome them to a Protestant mass. They looked over the walls and said, wow, that's like 100,000 potential rapists. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, the rapey Swedes are here. It's not about our liberators. No, no, no. It's, yeah, yeah. They want to get paid. (laughs) Big time, yeah. Were these mercenaries, they seem like it was a particular institution to the Holy Roman Empire, like... A lot of those states in the Holy Roman Empire had these mercenary companies. Well, okay, so the, what I know about in the, I know later, I know like a, you know, fast forward a century, like the famous Hessians, that that's a whole state in Germany that that their gross domestic product was basically turning out, you know, raising their their children as mercenaries and exporting them to you know the highest bidder it's just crazy like that it reached a level of sophistication in the 18th century and like you you know you read about the hessians in the american revolution for instance right um but rewind a century where we are there's still like wallenstein who was um you know like this just well like a general but also a nobleman and and i mean he was vastly way more richer than the empire than the emperor himself and he could just afford to pay these armies. So it'd be like, so, I, I mean, again, he would be kind of one of the, the highest investors because it's still the emperor had to, um, I mean, yeah, it's just, it's just weird. Like the emperor wasn't necessarily the one, the one organizing things. It was kind of. Um, the emperor had the authority. Yeah, like noblemen. Like, the emperor had the authority. Yeah, he, had he the, didn't have the money to actually like pay him anything. And the only way he could pay the likes. But well, I mean, of course, what's in it for Wallenstein? You know, it's not like I mean, it's still like he got his back out of this war, so it was still an investment, was what I was trying yeah. to say. Like it, the, the the emperor was like, he'd say, okay, I'll help you, but I'm getting mine back, which goes back to the mercenary thing of like, well, how is he making a profit off off well, of this? See, well, there he, you know. he wasn't even like I mean, when, in my first, not my first one, the second episode where I tried to kind of give maybe a revisionist view of the Thirty Years' War, my argument was that the Emperor was not actually powerful because even when it came to his allies, he couldn't even pay the likes of Bavaria, Maximilian of Bavaria, like the biggest opportunist in the Thirty Years' War, I think. 
he couldn't even pay him with money. He paid him with land, for example. He gave him, like, part of the Palatinate as his payment. Same with Wallenstein. He gave Wallenstein the duchies of Mecklenburg and a few other ones oh, as well. Yeah. So, I mean, it wasn't even the case that the emperor, like, was like, oh, I don't have enough soldiers, just take my money. He was like, I don't have enough soldiers, take this land kind of thing. Like, mm-hmm. it was severe, but it's... It is. It comes back to what Ben was saying about mercenaries. It's like it had reached such a point um, and populations and prosperity had reached such a point in like the kind of more prosperous hardlands of Germany, I suppose, that when it came time to pay, uh, mercenary captains like uh, Wallenstein um, were better being paid with land instead of money because the money like wasn't really as as reliable like by the by the end of the war the Reichsthalers had like degraded so much because they'd run out of so much silver and everything else land was more reliable um than really much stuff mm-hmm. but if if we look a little bit at the background in particular in in the the Holy Roman Empire the the big uh precedent the most direct precedent in terms of mercenary companies was the Swiss pikemen which were very famous, and they, they actually had a system set up similar to what you're descri- what Travis described with the Hessian. The Hessian, yeah. They, they would, um, specific states, mostly the Catholic ones, made a regular practice of selling out, like they would get people together and it'd be like, we have too many people, <laughs> um, you guys go off, potentially get killed, but make us some money. Um, and then the, the Swiss, who spent the early part of their political organization time uh, beating on the Holy Roman Emperor uh, caused the Holy Roman Emperor to turn around and want to create something similar. And so he created the Landschreck system, mm. uh, mm-hmm. which was based around uh, smallish aristocrats and uh, free cities that he- were directly answerable to him rather than any of the princes or anything and they would be they would raise mercenary companies and initially they were pretty terrible (laughs) uh but they they got better over time and so there was this uh slush fund of morally ambiguous men (laughs) running around in the holy roman empire willing to work for willing to kill people for money yes No, no loyalties, no, you know, not thinking like, oh, this village is, I mean, yeah, just totally random, you know, miles away from home or could be from anywhere. So, yeah. The thing is, what happened to the mercenaries, the reason we don't have mercenaries running around anymore is that the the second side of this equation got better. And it's not that the mercenaries, that everyone went, oh, God, these mercenaries are terrible. It's that the states got better at paying them and basically kept them on retainer forever and they became standing armies mm-hmm. um and the, the this isn't you know to cast dispersions on people who joined the military um but you know if we if we stopped paying our standing armies the, there'd be problems um the loyalty is obviously something that's very important to the modern military and and making ensuring civilian control over the military and everything but the way modern militaries developed was that they brought these mercenary companies sort of into the fold uh louis the 14th was one of the first people to do that on a a major scale in a major way because he was one of the first people to really organize uh, a modern centralized state to a certain extent although it would look horribly Mm -hmm. anachronistic to us today uh but then the the british also followed on in the in the years after the glorious revolution is when some of the first units of the modern British army were organized and they were organized as mercenary companies by people who were loyal to uh, William mm. William the mm-hmm. third so that's sort of what happened to mercenaries uh, 
basically. Ooh, very and the mercenaries, they, they filled a specific economic void that was there, that standing armies were extremely expensive, and militia, civilian militias weren't well-trained, and it wasn't really possible to train them very well because they had to go back and milk cows or do whatever mm-hmm. they have to do. So they were, you know, these people who could afford to have an excess of soldiers, well, why not? go you know make use of them and there, there's just so much that can be said for experience in terms of having a, a well-functioning army and uh, I, a lot of what lies behind the success of military powers like rome that started out with militia-based systems was that they were just paranoid militaristic jerks who kept attacking people <laughs> and so their militias had a lot of experience because every yeah. year they'd get yeah. together and go out and beat up on someone the idea of Spartan, yeah. Sparta, kind of, yeah. And military castes that developed, you know, a, a particular social uh, segment that military was their, their job and their function. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. ...in society, that's a lot different than, uh, you know, what was needed during that Middle Ages period or end of the early modern period. Let's talk a little bit about the aftermath of the Thirty Years' War. Travis, you had some interesting statistics about the... um, well, the war. yeah, because I was thinking, um, again, kind of uh, when I was thinking of Zach's uh, Westphalians, the, the, the folks that said, well, so the, the Treaty of Westphalia changed everything. It changed, you know, people no longer use mercenaries. People, uh, you know, it, 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 there was no more religious Love. wars apart from Ireland, maybe, <laughs> um, you know, and, and, uh, and, and that obviously Zach made the point that that's, that's not true. And I kind of. I kind of listening to that, I, I kind of had a different, some different thoughts because um, growing up in Germany, I would say you things did change. Like definitely things changed. I mean, um, but again, it could be a it could be a cycle that people went back and said, well, the treaties of Westphalia did this because that's what we, you know, they separated. Uh, yeah, here's here's the border of of Catholics and Protestants, and I don't know, like you know, it could have been a, a self fulfilling prophecy, so sure. to speak. But 
Um, yeah, if you look at Europe as a whole, the Thirty Years' War, um, I think the, the official statistic is like something like 10% of the population died, which is horrible. And it's not all war-related casualties. It's like famine from the mercenaries, you know, eating all the food and burning and pillaging and all that stuff. So 10% overall. But if you focus down to where all the battlefields are, um, Central Germany and Bohemia and Silesia, Silesia is like the uh, uh, Polish Czech border kind of thing. Um, it, the, those 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 numbers go up to like thirty percent, like thirty percent in Germany, uh, up to fifty percent, and in uh, Central Germany and Bohemia, and up to seventy percent in like parts of Silesia, Northern Bohemia. So like just, I mean, think about that. Like seventy percent of the population gone, basically due to war casualties and you know famine and that kind of thing. Uh, like that's worse than the black death that's just that's just crazy and that's you know 30 years of well it wasn't 30 years in every place but you'd have mercenary armies going back and forth and back and forth and um so from a german perspective i was thinking like what do you of course i mean even like the 30 years war is worse than world war one it's worse than world war two like what are you talking about it's like well if you were like somewhere in scotland uh, you probably lived through those years and didn't notice a whole lot you know, but um, or in in southern Italy or or some such. Um, so it was kind of it was a pan-European war, but everybody kind of met in the middle in a lot of cases um, and just destroyed central Germany. And that border today. So, I mean, when I was going to school, um, there was a crucifix. I, I went to school in Bavaria, which is southern Germany, and there's a crucifix hanging above the door. And and uh, I went to and it's a public school. But there's still there's a religion class and you pick whether you're Protestant or uh, Catholic and you go off and and it just at some point it dawned to me that that, okay most of the kids in my class, they crossed themselves after saying the Lord's Prayer. Oh, and you could you could be um, atheist and or Turkish like Muslim or whatever. And then you just go to ethics class. So there was a third option. Um, but yeah, it's like, you know, the majority of the kids like crossed themselves, the Protestants didn't. And I, I know I went off with like my Anglican, like British friends or all, all the Northern Germanies basically went off to Protestant class. And at some point that occurred to me that the, the, no one in that class has a Bavarian accent. It's all the, it's the people in the Catholic class. And it's just like, every once in a while, I was like, oh yeah, it's, it's weird. Like there's two Germanies. Well, there's, you know, there's two Germanies in a different sense, but there's North and South Germany. And there is that, that border. And it's a huge difference that you see till today mm. uh, in culture and all that. And the North is all the Lutherans. South is all the Catholics. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it doesn't make a huge difference on a daily basis today i'd say but but you could tell it's there and and me as a kid if, if i was going to go ask like hey why is this so then someone would say a uh, piece of westphalia yeah, yeah you know i mean so. i wouldn't i would never sorry to i just want to make this point otherwise i'll forget it um <laughs> just uh i would never argue that like the piece of westphalia was unimportant religiously um, what I would argue is that the problem I have with, with it is when people look at the Peace of mm. Westphalia and they say it ushered in a new European era of religious yeah. toleration. I mean, I know in yeah. the Holy Roman Empire, it's extremely significant because even yeah. us looking back at it, we can see a level of live and let live because it separated the ruler, the ruler's religion from the subject's religion, which meant that there was essentially yeah. a freedom of religion, even though it only extended to Calvinist, Catholic, and Lutheran. Kind of. Yeah. 
Yeah, I was gonna say like yeah, a tol- yeah, as a toleration of of, lori- of yeah. religion more. But I mean, yeah. it was a it was a level of tolerance that we would recognize as like quite insufficient. But for the sixteen forty eight Germany, it was immensely like tolerant it, compared to yeah. what had occurred before. Um, but what the problem I have with it, I I'm perfectly happy to say that it was religiously significant in Germany, the Holy Roman Empire, etc. Uh, yeah, I was going to say on your show you clarified. On your show you mentioned like if you were in Spain or France, then okay, first of all, it didn't make that much of a yeah. difference, and it was a whole different yeah. treaty. I mean, you made the point like they signed a whole different treaty that wasn't part mm. of that. The, the the thing that got me and still gets me is when people who don't really know any better say, oh, it was a religious turning point just for like the whole of Europe and yeah. for. Asia, Ages I had as a yeah, whole, like as a that's, whole. that's highlight that's exaggeration. It's a huge mistake yeah. because even while people don't understand the Holy Roman Empire, um, they might say, "Oh, it made it more like religiously tolerant for like all of Europe," without even realizing that it it only extended to the Holy Roman Empire, and it was so exclusive yeah. to the Holy Roman Empire that you see when the Swedes try to take over more territory as the Swedes are wont to do, or when the French try to take over Alsace-Lorraine, they have to negotiate with the Emperor and make sure that the Emperor knows, oh no, we're, we are taking this land, Mr. Emperor, but we're not going to try and like impinge on their religious rights or anything like that. And that that was that was mm-hmm. purely because of the Peace of Westphalia. I mean, the, the people, the Germans in the Holy Roman Empire had, what I'm trying to say, they had more religious rights in a sense than any other country after the Peace of Westphalia because with the likes of France or even in Britain where you had massive like the idea that your religion uh, impacted your loyalty to the state you had French Huguenots being evicted right up to like right up to like really like the end of Louis reign and then in in Britain of course as well there was the huge lack of of religious toleration in Parliament and the idea that Anglican royalists like were the norm um, and Charles II tries he might couldn't even bring in any religious toleration bills. So, I mean, I, I this is a long-winded way of mm-hmm. me saying that, like, the religious aspects of the Peace of Westphalia, oh, yeah. very important for the Holy Roman Empire, but its importance is debatable for the rest of Europe. I mean, in time it led... Don't, don't generalize. Yeah, don't generalize, to, yeah. yeah. In time it led to more toleration, but after 1648 there was no concept of yeah. the treaty. But same with, yeah, same with, like, it, they didn't suddenly magically come up with nationhood. They didn't suddenly magically come up with these, um, like, grandiose philosophical theories oh, of, yeah. we're gonna, you know, <laughs> we're gonna... Because, you know, because the people that wrote down the American Constitution did. Mm. You know, they these were visionaries. So maybe after the 18th century, they looked back and said, oh, well, the, the people that signed this this treaty were too. And they, you know, they were they were they, they wanted this religious tolerance and this Bill of Rights. Mm. And no, 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 well, no, no. <laughs> like, the thing is that the, the people who signed the the Declaration of Independence or the the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, they had examples at that point sure, of places yeah. that were functional and a you know, one and they of were the, romantics in a way. Oh, yeah. yeah. But but they yeah. had the example of the Dutch Republic, and they had yeah. the example of the Holy Roman Empire, where problematic as it was, thing society hadn't collapsed into total debauchery and chaos. Yeah. <laughs> so, it, to I mean, it's it's definitely possible to overstate it. But there's also something to be said for there were no examples or few examples before of any place that had. Um, you know, religious toleration on a wide, widespread scale, at least within Europe. And then now, yeah. now there the was an, an the Hussites, but that was weird. I mean, well, and the, the Hussites did. That was the first example that they, they kind of set the precedence in a way, but it was still weird. It was like they were still oppressed for sure. So, 
Um, and like yeah, you Lutherans, said, Travis, yeah. um, in our notes that the Jews still didn't have a seat at the table and the um, Muslims who were living in the Ottoman Empire very close, there was still conflict with them. And even the Russians uh, within that sphere, the Catholics and the Orthodox were still fighting at that time. Mm-hmm. So there was still a lot of religious fighting going on. It just kind of simmered it down yeah. in Germany. This was this 30 years war was a pretty brutal affair. I mean, millions of people dying in the ravaging of the countryside. Ben, can you talk to that a little bit and fill us in more? And then how did that develop afterwards, the brutality of war, the effect on civilians? Um, So a lot of people who, to use our phrasing, a lot of Westphalians (laughs) would say that after after Westphalia, there was a, a generalized revulsion against wide-scale war like that and the use of mercenaries, and that this led to war being less terrible. Um, I think that's not true in the oversimplified version that I just said. Um, it, it's not like everyone got together and was like, oh my god, this is terrible, we're going to fire all our mercenaries <laughs> and... Um, were, and soldiers, you need to be better trained. Yeah. <laughs> you can't steal steal things from <laughs> civilians. They need food. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, I, I think that after Westphalia, gradually warfare settled into a much more um, a much less widespread brutality. Mm. But I don't think that any of that was intentional, and I don't think any of that was built in. I think it was a, a yeah. creation of circumstances. Uh, the biggest thing being that the wars that happened after after Westphalia, uh, initially they were, a lot of them were naval wars, and then the big thing was Louis XIV's wars of expansion happened in these fortified zones. Yeah, that's a big and you might part think, of it, yeah. You might think that in the era of gunpowder that might not make much of a difference, but um, they'd come up with this fortification methodology called Trace Italian, or you can sometimes see it called Star Forts. Um, but basically, they were these massive, extraordinarily expensive fortifications that were resistant to cannon fire, and it would take you months of shooting at these things to make a dent. And um, the same processes of centralization and state collection of taxes that allowed them to start having mass-scale infantry armies that didn't necessarily devastate the countryside everywhere they went mm. uh, also allowed the state to start building these massive fortifications and that sort of requires a different skill set also you don't need quite such massive numbers of armies you need more siege engineers and things like that Mm. um and so most of these wars that happened were tied up in these sieges for years and years and years at a time and there wasn't so much roving around the countryside stealing wheat from the peasants (laughs) plus if you're spending all this time trying to take a city you're probably going to want to hold on to it and you probably don't want a burned-over ruin. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, um, that said, there were many times when, you know, if a city didn't surrender after there was a hole punched in the outer walls, then it became this sort of, you know, well, at that point, it's on you what happens yeah, to the yeah. people in the city, and the, yeah. the, the soldiers would be let off the chain. And when mobile warfare did happen, then supply lines could get problematic, or if you were in territory that you didn't necessarily want to hold on to, but you wanted to deny it to the other guy, well then, you know, again, totally legit, Mm. just (laughs) kill the civilians, take their stuff. Mm. So it was a lot about circumstances rather than any sort of 
yeah. humanitarian impulse sure. that took the European nobility. Mm. I, if I could jump, just jump in there to kind of clarify as well. Um, well, like we kind of rather than looking at, like you said, we should be looking at the circumstances rather than having this idea that everyone sat down and was like, let's be more moral. Because what actually happened, rather than everyone being like, we should not like rob from the peasants. Instead, a lot of it has to do with the fact that most of the wars from the from the end of the Thirty Years' War to like the early seventeen hundreds were all to do with Louis the Fourteenth. Um, and that's the area that people immediately study afterwards, and then they get the impression that, oh look, war changed. War didn't change because Louis the Fourteenth said, Oh, I don't want to take the money or the food from the peasants. Uh, it changed because Louis the Fourteenth was surrounded by fortresses. Um, and in order to expand, he needed to take them. So like you said, it was more localized. It was on smaller scales. But also the simple fact that wars didn't last for as long. I mean, they did. They lasted. They were broken up by periods of peace. I think I've measured it before. Between 1667 and 1715, when Louis the Fourteenth eventually died, there was 10 years of peace. Um, if you count all of the wars that Louis the Fourteenth set in motion, there was five in total, and three of them were like the larger ones that we would recognize. But like ten years, ten can set like that's all. So even even though you could say like what I just said, oh, it wasn't there wasn't another thirty years war. In other words, and that's a big part of the reason why the peasants weren't reduced as much as they were before, or the the people didn't see war spread throughout all of the lands. And um, it was mainly contained to the French borders because the French under Louis were the ones that were making the expansions happen. Just like it looked from, an, from a, an untrained eye, it looked like the emperor was the aggressor in the Thirty Years' War. Here it looks like Louis is the aggressor in his, in his wars. But um, at the same time, I would agree with that. I would say that the circumstances changed, so therefore the character of war changed. Um, it is important not to put it into boxes because, like you said... If things did change, if, if someone's circumstances went from needing to fight an open battle instead of actually fighting a siege, then devastations could happen that, that hark back to the Thirty Years' War. For example, just off the top of my head, in the Palatinate, in the from about 1689 to about 1691, uh, the French forces pretty much implemented a terrible scorched earth policy in the Palatinate along the Rhine ostensibly to protect the French border from any incursions, but some people, some historians suspect that there might even have been a religious undertone to it, and uh, as well as that, Louis XIV's uh, sister-in-law, so Louis XIV's brother, Monsieur uh, Philip, um, he, his unfortunate wife was uh, Charlotte Elizabeth of the Palatinate, and uh, people think that Louis might have tried to invade the Palatinate because he could. He actually did it in the name of Charlotte Elizabeth of the Palatinate. Um, so this unfortunate, uh, this unfortunate wife of the of Monsieur, as if she wasn't unfortunate enough, being being the wife of uh, Philip of Philip the Duke of Orleans. At least she wasn't unfortunate enough, but. Um, she had to endure hearing about all her homeland being burnt down in her name because Louis arrived with his French soldiers expecting to take over this area in, in like, basically forcibly, like, have it seceded to him, but it didn't really work out that way. But yeah, that's a, I've kind of gone off on a tangent, but as, as much as circumstances did change, it is important not to put history into boxes because when, when the war did get out of hand, as it did in the Palatinate, 
it looked just as similar to just as horrible really as the 30 years war had so yeah what do you think was the aftermath of what was the immediate aftermath of this uh, of the treaty of westphalia uh, maybe zach take that one since that was something that you talked a lot about well i mean if you're looking at the immediate aftermath of the peace of westphalia in say the hullerman empire or in uh, the rest of europe i mean the rest of europe it's almost like they say, oh, that's nice for about like a few years and then it's almost business as usual straight away. I mean, in the Holy Roman Empire, it certainly did bring in at least a decade of of a bit of peace because there wasn't as much conflict. I mean, the Thirty Years' War had ended in itself. That that makes the Peace of Westphalia somewhat significant because it ended years of turmoil that the Holy Roman Empire had gone through. But if you were to look at the likes of other participants in the Thirty Years' War, but uh, such as um, the Fr- France, obviously we know Louis the Fourteenth went on a tear for the next few years and started a load of his own wars, and the same with the case in Sweden in sixteen fifty five. There was a. Uh, there was what was called the Second Great Northern War, or what other people just called the Swedish Deluges, because Sweden invaded Poland, took it over, then invaded Denmark, took it over, that kind of thing. Um, the Dutch, of course, were at war with the English for a few a few different wars, the Second and First and Second and Third Anglo-Dutch Wars, which then bled into the Franco-Dutch War. So, I mean, there was no sense of, like, oh, there's no more conflict or anything like that. It was more the case that, like... So it's really an arbitrary line where you say, okay, this treaty is one we're going to emphasize. for. But that's what really... Because you, you could go forward five years or backwards five years and just because, okay, this is the one that, yeah, uh, yeah nominally at least, the Thirty Years' War was absolutely a religious mm. war. I mean, the, the, the spark that started it, all, all those events were. Yeah. So, which, which even though you could argue, like, well, why did Czechs rebel? Well, because they were being oppressed. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, there were also Hussites and their overlords were Catholic, but... They were also just, they were Czech and their overlords were Austrian, too. Yeah. So, I mean, even uh, just, yeah, I mean, even just the conception of the Thirty Years' War geographically is kind of bizarrely arbitrary because at the same time, the French wars of religion were going on. And, yeah. And then there were the wars going on. It was the League of Cambrai in Italy, I think. Um, and then, or I might have the name wrong, but there was a war going on in Italy. <laughs> There's wars going on uh, in Poland and Russia at the same time. Uh, and with the Ottoman Empire, and, and so the just the these boxes that historians put everything into are, I think they're useful pedagogical tools from from a certain standpoint because we we all do sort of need narratives. I think that's like a, a genetic need yeah. for us to <laughs> start swallowing sure. these things. But um, they we really should recognize that they are arbitrary things. And if we get in into study of these things with any kind of depth, there's just all this stuff going on that's completely intertwined. Yeah. It's really impossible to I know. I mean, them. my whole point was that, it, it, like, even just from the wars I showed you that happened almost directly after the Thirty Years' War, in order to understand how they came about, we have to look at the Thirty Years' War or even, like, disparate events that happened during that period. We can't cut off 1648 and say, well, then, that was, like, the previous era. And now this era, oh, look at all this war. Where did it come from? Like, it doesn't make sense if we do that. And that's why I despise when, like, people put history into boxes. And I really... I don't like the idea of of like history starting like surveys starting in 1648 and then just kind of examining like the likes of the Anglo-Dutch war out of nowhere because like that you wouldn't start you wouldn't look at the Anglo-Dutch war and like not investigate the the British Republic and say oh like 
you you wouldn't just start in in 1652 when the first Anglo-Dutch war started and be like here's the war I mean you'd have to look at events that came beforehand just like you'd have to look at if you were to look at Louis XIV's wars you'd have to look at his upbringing and like how his birth during the Fronde and everything else like shaped how he viewed conflict and shaped how he viewed the state and everything else and even the fact that like he kind of like came to maturity during the period where France was at war with Spain like that's like all these things like history doesn't like separate itself organically into different eras it bleeds into different eras so we kind of like historians themselves i know they like to tie things into different packages but we do that at the expense of our own ability to kind of learn and take from history if we do it with the peace of westphalia because on the one hand people say the peace of westphalia is so significant but then on the other hand they're content to leave it behind in a box and not really learn from it so it doesn't really make sense ben from an international relations aspect that um we say that we live in westphalian states and that there's so much tied up into that what do you think about that whole idea that that's where the modern state comes from i would say that and this is um i would say that the that's a shorthand for saying that the modern state system did come from this period the early modern period however you want to define that uh, in my show, I start the early modern period in 1500, um, and you could go earlier, <laughs> uh, but you, you things really crystallized in terms of the modern state around the time of the Thirty Years' War, one way or the other. But um, saying saying that the the state system and the balance of power and all that came about as a result of the Treaty of Westphalia itself is, of course wrong i think we've covered that (laughs) but it's also you need to say something you can't particularly given how ridiculous the term early modern is yeah yeah i'd like some jumbo shrimp with my early modern yeah um but you can't be like the we live in the post early modern state system it doesn't work (laughs) but so people say westphalian as, as a as a shorthand um, and I think, I'm sure a lot of international relations scholars never dig in deep enough to understand that it's a shorthand, but from, in terms of their area, in terms of their method of inquiry, in terms of their academic discipline, it doesn't matter really where it came from. The point is states, as we talked about them in the previous state formation episode, the, the whole monopoly on the use of force, uh, living in an anarchic international community, um, all those, all those things. That that's sort of the important thing. And that method of inquiry, that 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 method of study, that has value. Um, and if people who are doing the study are a little bit unclear on the the historic origins in uh, in Franco-Swedish propaganda, yeah. well, that that really doesn't matter that much, <laughs> actually. <laughs> We've started to put together a lot of the pieces and that the international relations part and the history part are a little disconnected and there's a big mess of when early modern starts. Zach, what are your takeaways from all this research that you've done and what can you what else would you like to say about all of this uh that we've talked about and what you've talked about. Okay, sure. Well, I think above all the thing that I really got struck by after looking at all this is the importance of not like taking off our our rose tinted or or even scientific glasses and rather than trying to pick a side when it comes to the peace of westphalia just look at the peace of westphalia itself like 
I don't know whether that means like trying to find primary sources on it, which might be hard, or just try and find as impartial a source as possible. And which is hard to do because with something like the Peace of Westphalia, because it's so, it's held up as so important, it's almost like that importance has stopped people from actually investigating what it actually means. And by that I don't mean like what it's come to mean, I mean what it, mean, what it meant to the people at the time of 1648 who actually signed it, what those people actually thought of like making peace. I mean, I'm sure rather than like rather than actually thinking oh well this will be very beneficial in the future because now historians when when looking at this period that we live in now they can put us into a box and say that before 1648 like none of this stuff that we're about to that we're about to sign on the dotted line for existed and after this period of history it all does so uh, it's important not to apply our own values and principles to history in general and i've found that a lot with the first world war as well but with this period of history over the centuries after West, after the Peace of Westphalia, Europe, I'm not going to say inevitably, but Europe took a certain course due to a certain series of events. And if we attributed it all down to the Peace of Westphalia and say suddenly after 1648, sovereignty and the balance of power, no more religious warfare, uh, a restricted emperor and all that other stuff that goes along with it, we miss the fact that events like the American Revolution or the French Revolution or even like the 1848 revolutions and the First World War and events like that. I mean, we miss the impact that those events had on European history as well. It's unrealistic to attribute everything that happened from 1648 and the way in which we view states and statehood and everything else and how they interact. It's unrealistic to attribute all of that to one peace treaty. Because as... as maybe as hopeful as the human beings in 1648 may have been to maintain peace or what have you, they, would have, they wouldn't have been able to like pass those hopes and dreams down to their predecessors and make sure that, oh, sovereignty was maintained or what have you. Sovereignty and everything else that went along with the Peace of Westphalia, or at least what historians have since attributed to it, um, it developed organically through human experience, like, it's it's not really right in my mind to, like, say, oh, the Peace of Westphalia caused sovereignty, caused the balance of power. It's just, it bothers me as well because we're viewing history backwards. And I think that's that's the key thing I took from it. You have to go back to the beginning if you want to understand history. And you cannot say, like, you cannot hold your own views and then apply them to the people that acted in 1648. Because the people in 1648, they were trying their best. Some of them were suffering from gout. Some of them were waiting on letters that they'd been waiting on for months. Um, some of them were, like, they were really annoyed at a particular diplomat in particular. They were sick and tired of being in the Westphalian area for nearly four years. Some of them had their own ambitions and dreams and just wanted to make peace. I mean, these weren't idealists, as we've established. They were just average men who were just trying to do their best to make peace. So if we say, oh, they set in notion this grand system, um, not only are we failing to understand the real history, but we're also giving them way too much credit. So yeah, I think I would give it a cautionary conclusion, what I, what I called it in my mini-series. Uh, look at the history, not the actual values that have since come from that period. Travis, do you have any final takeaways? Um, yeah, I mean, because because it's just kind of really interesting that that I was trying to think about um, when I was listening to Zach's shows, like, well, how do I think about um, in my other shows, for instance, like the uh, the history of alchemy, where I talk about 
um, Prague a lot and like the people that came to Prague because of the culture and how open it was. And there, uh, there's also, there's a very strong pre 30 years war and post 30 years war. And, um, and that's, you know, that's, that's, that's tougher to, that's, that's much more a local history of like, um, Austrian, you know, the Habsburgs and the, and the German emperors and that kind of thing. And, and why they chose Vienna as a capital or Prague as a capital or this or that. And, and it's really local. If you look at that local history, then, oh yeah, you see, I mean, it's night and day. You see a huge difference. It's like uh, looking at the, at the layer between post and pre black plague, mm-hmm. you know, kind of thing. Um, but if you try to extrapolate and, and, you know, oversimplify again and say, well, there was, uh, you know, there was a economic downturn and I mean, it, it reached from, from Ireland to Russia or something, um, or that they had these grandiose philosophical ideas, then it doesn't make so much sense. Um, but still, I mean, <laughs> personally, I always found it, a. a, a I, I guess I, I thought I did learn something from Zach's, um, miniseries too, which was because personally I did find it a huge, um, or even even in my own life going kind of along the lines of what you said is like you see an event and you wonder well how did it get there so you have to go backwards and backwards yeah. in time and you you know why did this happen and in my own life I look at a map of um, uh, religious boundaries and I see that Bavaria and Baden-Württemberg are Catholic and Austria and Switzerland um, well Switzerland not necessarily actually and then um, and then north you know is the the you know why is the north um, Protestant oh well that's Prussian well what does that mean oh well that's where Martin Luther was that's you know oh well okay well you know and then just these, these questions come and you start going back and back and and a lot of times it's like well damn it because they signed the treaty of Westphalia and that's where it is yeah. okay <laughs> oh okay and th- that's where the questions end yeah. you know at least to a to a to a 10 year old or whatever um, but that kind of makes sense. So then, then people kind of say, well, that's, it is because it is that way now. If you look at this religious, these boundaries, it's because they signed this treaty and everybody was happy. You know, there was religious toleration. Um, so yeah, it's an, it's an easy answer, but, but yeah, if you look, if you look, um, underneath, um, the surface, then you find it's much more complicated. I always just, just, I don't know, just, you know, from my own personal history, um, I always look at an era and, and think, um, how were the Jews doing, quite frankly? Were they being oppressed? Were they more open? And even here, I didn't bring that up on this episode because um, if you, yeah, they were, they were more emancipated. The Jews had a better time uh, in the Netherlands mm. after their treaty with Spain. But probably in the long run, I mean, yeah, then you start getting into the what ifs, but they, they didn't necessarily have a better time in Germany, uh, maybe initially because you have this idea of religious toleration but not really. You you have this idea of, um, well, Lutherans are okay now along with the Hussites, um, but anybody else is, you know, because Lutheran means you're Prussian. Catholic means you're Holy Roman Empire. Well, you know, you're you're good. You're part of Christendom. Um, but there was still no room for Jews in there. So there's still, you know, they were better in some areas, worse in other areas. So what kind of answer is that, sure. you know? Um yeah, it's just um, yeah, it's a it's an interesting time. I think it was a brutal war. It was a it, again maybe this is I don't want to over exaggerate to all of Europe, but in central Germany it was brutal. Uh, whole villages were wiped out, villages starved to death, um, women and children were massacred. 
And yeah, I'm sure there's over-exaggeration. And even at that time, there's a certain propaganda. But but atrocities happened on a massive scale. It was a, it was a desperate sort of um, like total war sort of situation in a way. Or just, just yeah, like brutalities happened. Um, that maybe that area didn't see those types of brutalities uh, after. Like Czech Republic, maybe. Or, you know, Bohemia and Silesia and that kind mm. of thing. Um for a couple centuries, so maybe for them it was like, oh, well, here's a new era, you know, era of prosper of peace. Um, whereas, like you said, in the in Palatinate, like French were going to town. Yeah, so, yeah, um, yeah it's um, yeah. It, again, we could we could fill hours. I gotta say, uh, I re- I did really enjoy Zach's uh, miniseries. I gotta uh, emphasize to the listeners of this show to go listen to that. Oh, he did a great job. Nice. I think if you add them all together, it's like what four hours of this topic so yeah you know we don't want to rehash everything and we can't we can't do it justice i mean go yeah definitely go listen to that um ben is gonna i mean ben's whole ben's whole podcast is kind of going to i mean my my whole podcast come together my whole podcast is predicated on this anti-box stance yeah basically i was gonna do a history of the 30 years war and then i was like well i can't there's like all these other wars going on at the same time. I need to do other stuff too. Mm. And even, but even in the title of your show, you know, you're like from Wittenberg to Westphalia. Westphalia is a, it's a line it's in a the sand. It's a cutoff point. Right. You know? <laughs> right. But, yeah. But then yeah. I say in the first episode that I'm not actually going to stop. Yep. <laughs> and you're like, actually the scope's way blurrier. And whatever I want. I'm probably yeah. going to go up to the glorious revolution and then talk about the colonies. and. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. So, but yeah, um, yeah, there's, there's, uh, if you, if you, if this topic is interesting, there's a, there's a lot more out there for yes, you. That's for sure. Time. And if you do want to learn more, uh, Zach, where can we learn about your show? Well, I mean, if you, if you want to learn more about the Peace of Westphalia, um, of course, you I do. did a, a thir- I did a 30 years war special, uh, about three years ago now. Um, and I also did recently WDF asks, we did a, a special on is Westphalia overrated, um, which kind of it looks at the Westphalian, the anti-Westphalian, and then ties it all together. Um, it's uh, quite quite digestible, but um, you can find it uh, if you just simply search when diplomacy fails. I mean, it's the most recent episodes. You can also go to www.wdfpodcast.com, and all the episodes are up there. Simply uh, click the uh, sidebars and stuff. So, yeah. Ben, can you add a little bit more to what uh, you... Uh, wrap up a little bit and then you can share your how we can get in contact with you sure um so i, I guess my big we could probably all three of us could probably keep talking for several more hours yeah. <laughs> i know i could but uh i think the big summary thing is just i want to talk a little bit about the historical process in that i mentioned this a little bit before that the historian goes back to all the primary source documents and does their thing and then pushes uh, conclusions and narratives out to uh, theorists on the one hand, like international relations scholars, but then also out to the general public. And part of the process there is that you have people who aren't necessarily historians, but who often are, who write popular histories that are more digestible, that people who don't have specialized training and access to academic sources, mm-hmm. that they can they can take it in and it's a little bit easier to deal with. And Admittedly, popular history is usually about 10 to 30 years behind the curve, but it's an important part of the process. And the two 
big takeaways from this discussion I would like to, to say is, first of all, that there's a lot going on in the academic community about this era. The early modern era is uh, intensely important right now in, in academic work that's going on. And the other hand, the other thing I wanted to say is that, so, well, so there's a lot to be learned. It's a very exciting time. And then the other thing I'd want to say is that podcasts are sort of a very important part of the popular history landscape right now. Yeah. And so the three of us are doing our part to try and bring what's going on in academia uh, out to you unwashed masses. <laughs> and so I hope you appreciate us because <laughs> these guys are great. And anyway, <laughs> ah, yes. so that's... Uh, that's the big takeaway is that there, there's a lot of exciting information out there right now, and I'm really excited to be part of this conversation and part of this wider conversation to, to bring this material out to people. And Ben, where can we learn more about your show? And if you want to find out more about my show, I'm at uh, my website is www.wittenberg2westphaliapodcast.weebly.com, and you can I'm on iTunes, I'm on all the podcatchers, so... Uh, look me up. Glad to have you. And I swear I'll, I swear I'll get to the Wars of the Protestant Reformation at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Great, and Travis, how yeah, can we so get if a, you, uh, if you like the time period, I do a History of Alchemy show, which ends up being a lot of, like, History of Science, granted, but in the uh, early modern period. Um, and then Bohemican, which is all about the Czech Republic. We've done several shows, the Second Defenestration, the uh, topics around the Thirty Years' War. Um, I was a ghost tour guide where there was like torture chambers. Uh, where actually they, they tortured the noblemen that were beheaded that sparked the whole war and then also was used as dungeons in the Thirty Years' War. So there's like graffiti from like, you know, 1620s, 30, or whatever it is. Um, it's just like really neat stuff. And... Um, so that's on Bohemican. And then, uh, yeah, I do the history of Germany. So I'm not quite to this time period yet. Uh, I think I'm somewhere. I'm for, Where am I now? There's uh, Saxons, Luther, Luther, what? Uh, there's Saxons and Franks somewhere. So I'm in the 11th century. So I still got a ways to go. Just a bit. Jeez. Like, well, I started with Neanderthals. So I, got, I went from like 40,000 BC to, so I'm already in the 10th century, 11th century. So that's good. You're doing way better than um, me. <laughs> <laughs> so all of those you can find on podcastnik.com that's podcastnik.com um but we do start going we're yeah a lot of the the origins of the hre and how it kind of changed from charlemagne's time to the saxons to the you know and and how the pope is involved i think i'm gonna have uh, steve guerra on the show here pretty soon to talk about the investiture controversy and and like all yeah i mean so if, you, if you're interested in the holy roman empire and all of that stuff we are yeah we are covering that so um again that's podcastnick.com podcastnik.com well i thank everybody for being on i think this was a great conversation i of course have been steve the his, uh, host of the history of the papacy podcast and we are all members of the agora podcast network this month's Agora Podcast Network Podcaster of the Month is Dominic from the History of Egypt Podcast. You should definitely check out all of the great Agora Podcast Network shows at agorapodcastnetwork.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 